0: The following program was made possible in part by a grant from Organic Valley Family of Farms, organic and farmer-owned since 1988. Learn more at organicvalley.com. Welcome to the Bioneers, revolution from
1: the heart of nature. I'd like to convey a rather terse and unusual message that over the next few decades, this country can get completely off oil, It seems to me this is an endgame we ought to be playing to win. It's all
0: alive. It's all connected. It's all intelligent. It's all relatives. Scientists tell us that concern with the environment will no longer be just one of many issues in this new century. It will move to center stage. It will become the context of everything, of our lives, our businesses, our politics. We are, in fact, moving from the information age to the age of biology. In this series, the pioneers revolution from the heart of nature, we salute the pioneers, the biological pioneers who are working with nature to heal nature, honoring both traditional native wisdom and modern scientific knowledge, restoring the earth by changing the world. The author and futurist Hazel Henderson has characterized conventional economics as a form of brain damage. It's easy to see why. For example, the notorious 1989 Exxon Valdez oil spill suffocated pristine Alaskan shorelines, damaged tourism, choked fisheries, and contributed positive financial value to the gross national product, the central ledger of economic measurement. Why? The $2 billion spent mopping up the black slick was counted as positive income because the costs of ecological damage are nowhere to be found on the balance sheet. Instead, business externalizes those costs onto society. We, the people, and nature pay for it. In fact, government subsidies and economic incentives actually reward business for environmentally destructive activities. According to this upside down system of economic measurement, destroying the earth is good business. Or you could call it brain damage. But is harm to the environment intrinsic to the nature of market economics, or are there ways to use the existing market to actually restore the earth and people? And is there also an even greater economics based on how nature operates that's good for the bottom line? In this program, we look at two different approaches to economics that address the seemingly most intractable environmental challenges we face, energy and agriculture. One approach uses the logic of the market itself to bring about the end of oil. And by putting nature on the balance sheet, from bio-benign shrimp farms to growing profitable toxic-free potatoes in Wisconsin, a second approach is demonstrating the superiority of nature's economy. Join us for the next half hour as we explore aligning business with biology, breakthrough economics, with energy and green design master Amory Lovins and economist and anthropologist Jason Clay. My name is Neil Harvey. I'll be your host. Welcome to the Bioneers, revolution from the heart of nature. Oil economy has been about as far as you can get from economics. Oil has been at the black heart of environmental destruction for over a century. From pervasive poisoning of the biosphere to global warming to wars and terrorism, our oil habit has driven us down a destructive and expensive road. Can we get off oil? Can we do it by using the very market economy that oil helped create? Emery
1: Levin says we can. I'd like to convey a rather... Terse and unusual message that over the next few decades, this country can get completely off oil, not just imported but domestic also if we wish, and can revitalize both its industrial and its rural economy in a way that's profitable and will therefore be led by business. Amory Levins has long been an
0: advocate for both economics and the free market economy. For 30 years, he has predicted this end-of-oil transition and has been designing the way to a soft energy path of renewable energy and energy efficiency. Lovins has shown that going green benefits the bottom line. He says that companies that fail to make the change will be left in the dust. The best way to predict the future is to create it, which is exactly what Lovins has done as a consultant and green designer working with Fortune 500 companies, the Pentagon, and governments around the world the co-founder and CEO of the Think and Do tank called Rocky Mountain Institute. He's helped launch a revolution in resource efficiency and energy policy. He says we can now win the oil endgame. Amory Levin spoke at a recent Bioneers conference.
1: There are two big reasons to want to win the oil endgame, both national security and national competitiveness. Both are at risk. We know about the big problems of oil. I'm here to talk about solutions, so I won't go into these. And in fact, our analysis values them at zero, although that's surely not the right number. Uh, But also, we need to worry about the competitiveness of the core of our industries, the companies that make cars, trucks, and planes, and employ over a million people one way or another in many of our highest-wage jobs. It's not just Japanese and European competition that Detroit needs to worry about. Uh, China will enter the world market as a major exporter by 2010, and they integrate their car policy with their energy policy, which is really visionary. It's based on very strong energy efficiency and leapfrog technology. They will not export your uncle's Buick. They're going to export cars that uh, use little oil and ultimately no oil because they're working on fuel cells as well. There's something we can do about all this. We can save half the oil at an average cost of $12 a barrel by using it more efficiently. Uh, and it's those same industries at risk making the cars, trucks, and planes that can make very efficient ones to do that job. We can displace another 20% of the oil with modern biofuels and displace the rest with saved natural gas, most efficiently and profitably via hydrogen. The net saving of doing all this would be about $70 billion a year, and we would add uh, at least a million net new jobs, not counting the million-odd that we would have protected meanwhile. To do this, we'll require about $180 billion of investment, have to retool the car, truck, and plane industries, and have to build a modern biofuels industry. Amory Lovins and the Rocky Mountain Institute conducted a detailed
0: study on exactly how to win the oil endgame. The analysis does not propose higher gas taxes or stricter federal fuel efficiency standards. Instead, it recommends actions that will reduce the federal budget deficit, dramatically reduce the trade deficit, and need no new federal laws. But $180 billion. Where do you find $180
1: billion? That $180 billion investment may seem like a lot until you realize that it's barely over a year of the annual return. If, for example, you spread the investment over a decade, reasonably, that's what we spend on oil imports about every eight weeks, not counting the oil-related part of Homeland Security, not counting 50-odd billion dollars a year in the peacetime readiness costs of military forces whose primary mission is intervention in the Persian Gulf, um, and yet the market still attaches about a ten or fifteen dollar risk premium to that oil. You can argue about whether it 's despite our troops being there or because of our troops being there uh, of course the the benefit you get is not just the oil saving, which even at the low government forecast of twenty six bucks a barrel would be over one hundred and thirty billion bucks a year, but also tens of billions of dollars a year for the Pentagon in they 're not having to move so much fuel around and some ag subsidies and some carbon credits and the unquantifiable but probably very large value of a world where we have neg emissions in the Gulf, mission unnecessary. We don't need the oil. Uh, We can treat countries that have a lot of oil the same as countries that don't have any oil, and other people around the world have no reason to think that everything this country does is about oil, and that we don't have to worry about its insecurity, volatility, possible depletion, and so on. Mission unnecessary.
0: We won't need the oil anymore. But is this mission implausible? Lovin says we've already done it. It occurred between 1977 and 1985,
1: after OPEC raised prices and caused a strangling oil shortage in the United States. During those eight years... The gross domestic product went up 27%, oil use fell 17%, oil imports fell 50%, oil imports from the Persian Gulf fell 87%. They would have been gone if we'd kept that up for another year. And because the U.S. and other countries saved so much oil, OPEC's sales actually fell by half, and it broke their pricing power for a decade It turned out the United States had more market power than OPEC, but ours is on the demand side. We can save oil faster than they can conveniently sell less oil, and we can rerun that play again, only better. Well, that was practice. Now it's real. You are here. Where we have to start is light vehicles, cars and light trucks, because they use um, 40 heading for 50 percent of the oil and are responsible for most of its growth. I think a lot of people haven't realized about the physics of a typical car is that about seven eighths of its fuel energy never gets to the wheels. It's lost first in the engine, powertrain, idling, and accessories. Of the one eighth that does get to the wheels, half of it goes to heat the tires and road or to heat the air that the car pushes aside, and only about six percent ends up accelerating the car and then heating the brakes when you stop. In fact, less than 1% of the fuel energy ends up moving the driver after more than a century of devoted engineering effort. This isn't very gratifying. Uh, Moreover, three-quarters of all the fuel energy that your car uses is caused by its weight, and every unit of fuel you can save at the wheels means another seven additional units you don't need to waste getting that energy to the wheel. So you have about an eight-to-one leverage if you make the physics of the car better, particularly by making it much lighter weight. This was long thought to be impractical because of both safety and cost, but both of those objections have now been resolved by new developments in materials and design. For example, here's a handmade, very expensive, Carbon fiber supercar, a Mercedes SLR McLaren, that got T boned by a VW Golf running a red light. It popped a carbon side panel off the McLaren and scratched the panel, so they'll have to fix the scratch. And they popped the panel back on, drove away. The Golf had to be towed, it was totaled. Uh, but if you were to look inside the front end of this McLaren, you would find a couple of two foot long woven carbon fiber cones weighing a total of 17 pounds that 17 pounds of material can absorb the entire crash energy of that car hitting a wall at 65 miles an hour because these materials can absorb 6 or even 12 times as much crash energy per pound as steel and do so more smoothly. So we no longer have a contradiction between making cars uh, light for efficiency and safe and big, for that matter, which is protective but without the weight which is hostile. So we can end up saving oil and lives at the same time. And also, by the way, the cars can get cheaper to manufacture. Using simple design improvements like these and others
0: in advanced propulsion, Amory Lovins says we can triple the efficiency of cars, trucks, and airplanes. Added together with oil savings in buildings and industry, we could save half our total projected oil usage. Then there's the supply side of the equation. By moving to biofuels and biomaterials by saving half our natural gas at a fraction of its current price, by substituting the saved gas for oil, we can displace the other half of projected oil use at a huge savings. Again, Hamry Levins.
1: We're used to paying lots of dollars per barrel and not getting many barrels from the old corn ethanol technology where you just use the starchy part of the plant. But if you use the woody part of plants like switchgrass and poplar, you can get twice the yield with lower capital cost with a lot less energy input. So there's almost 4 million barrels a day, robustly competitive with the government's low oil price forecast. As a little indication of the maturation of biofuels, Brazil has already replaced a quarter of its gasoline with sugarcane ethanol And they can undercut gasoline in the world market and do. They're starting to export it to Japan and China. They can't export to us because we have a tariff to protect the corn farmers. Um, They had to subsidize the ethanol to start up, but they've already earned that back 50 times over from the oil savings. And uh, their newest cars can burn 100% ethanol, 100% gasoline, or anything in between. So there are no captive customers. you get real competition. And then the other big supply-side substitution is save natural gas. Instead of increasing our use of gas, most of the increase coming from liquefied natural gas, which is costly, controversial, and a terrorism risk, we could save about 12 trillion cubic feet a year, two-thirds of it by saving electricity, especially at peak hours, because it's made very inefficiently of natural gas. And uh, it would be straightforward within a few years... To save most of that gas and cut 40 or 50 odd billion dollars a year off our gas and electric bills and make blackouts and price gouging very much more difficult to occur. Let's do the math on oil savings. With a
0: combination of efficient vehicles, buildings, and factories, plus biofuels and biomaterials to replace oil plus substituting saved natural gas, either directly or converted into hydrogen. were there, needing no oil
1: at all. Oil endgame. Game over. The implications are huge. There are a lot of reasons you might want to do what I've described. You might be concerned about national security, or cost, or jobs, or the planet, or our kids. But whatever your motive, it seems to me this is an end game we ought to be playing to win. Thank you.
0: <laughs> Amory Lovins and the Market Economics of Energy. Going green benefits the bottom line. Aligning business with biology is a win-win, and business leaders are starting to do it for their own competitive advantage. When we return, Jason Clay on breakthrough economics that is transforming agriculture. This is Aligning Business with Biology, Breakthrough Economics. I'm Neil Harvey. You're listening to The Bioneers, revolution from the heart of nature. Additional audio materials related to this program can be found at Bioneers.org. Most people don't realize it, but the single greatest destroyer of the environment is agriculture. Transforming how we grow our food is among the most urgent changes we need to make, and one of the most doable. At the core of the problem is the mass production of large-scale commodities.
2: People eat shrimp. What's the best way to produce them? What's the most sustainable way to produce them? There are two types. The world has trawling, which causes severe benthic impacts and has bycatches of up to 10 to 13 pounds for every pound of shrimp cost. And there's aquaculture, which has cut mangroves and destroyed coastal wetlands, which uses wild fish converted into shrimp that are then sold to the public. Fishing that
0: destroys 10 to 13 pounds of sea life for every pound of marketable shrimp is an example of Hazel Henderson's brain damage economics. Economist and anthropologist Jason Clay is working to show how we can transition the business of food production to greener practices. As vice president of the Center for Conservation Innovation at the World Wildlife Fund, he undertook a study called World Agriculture and the Environment, It's a kind of green print for how to transform food commodity production to ecological practices and make good business doing it worldwide. We'll look at two examples, aquaculture and non-toxic potato farming in Heartland, USA. Sometimes when you think big, as Jason Clay does, you start small, in this case with shrimp, one of the top 15 commodities sold in the world. Jason Clay spoke at a recent Bioneers conference.
2: What we found is that the better shrimp farmers now produce 40% of the feed in the water column itself. They're using nature to feed their crop. They're not throwing feed at it. They've reduced waste. In the past, shrimp were being fed just by scattering the feed into open ponds, and 30% of the feed was never eaten. Today, they use trays and have eliminated that. The best ponds or the best operations produce a kilo of shrimp with 0.4 kilos of wild fish as feed. That's not a bad exchange given that the, most people won't eat the, the wild fish that's being used as the feed, so it's, it's a pretty good exchange. They also used plastic liners to line the ponds. This eliminates any seepage into groundwater, but more importantly, it reduces total water use. In the vast ponds, it takes as much as 200 cubic meters of water to make one shrimp cocktail because the water is just flowing through those systems as a way to keep uh, them in balance. Whereas in the more intensive ponds, the um, amount of water it takes to make one shrimp cocktail is about two-thirds of one cubic meter. So it's a slight difference every time you eat your shrimp cocktail. You can remember that. One of the most interesting things that's happened, however, is that shrimp farmers are beginning to plant and establish artificial mangroves to act as biofilters on their farm. What their goal is is to make sure that the water that leaves their operation is of the same or better quality as the water they take in, and they've been able to achieve that. In fact, governments can push this by starting to tax effluents, and and this, in fact, spurs it fairly quickly. One Colombian farmer spent $100,000 on an operation and figures in the first year alone, he saved 90000 in taxes. But he also increased the value of his shrimp because when you bring in water that's contaminated with other people's effluence, it makes the shrimp taste funny. So he got $300,000 from his buyers because his shrimp was of higher quality.
0: Shrimp farmers are making big profits by aligning their business with biology, by inventing better practices, and by learning how to think the way nature does. Despite advances around the world, agriculture remains the biggest polluter of the planet. It uses more chemicals than any other industry, including some of the most toxic ones.
2: One of the things that we want to try to do, I think, as society, is reduce the use of toxic chemicals like pesticides. Farming is encoded in
0: Jason Clay's DNA. He grew up on a farm, then went to Harvard to learn economics and anthropology. He's spoken with thousands of farmers and in Wisconsin helped develop a system for growing better potatoes, better aligned with biology.
2: We began to work with producers in Wisconsin, potato producers, to see if we couldn't reduce the use of pesticides in potato production, not to go organic, but to see if we could get them to be weaned off of some of the more intensive and more organophosphates and endocrine disruptor kinds of chemicals. So what we did was prepare a kind of a global budget of pesticides where we ranked all of the pesticides both synthetic and natural and we looked at them in terms of their toxicity not just to people but to all other classes of organisms from freshwater to soil organisms to birds to mammals etc and we created budgets for the farmers that were based on what the 10% best farmers were doing we eventually certified 5% of growers in the state of Wisconsin But because that information and the approach was out there, farmers throughout the state actually began to reduce their use of pesticides. For the Class 1 and 2 pesticides, the most toxic pesticides, when we started this project six years ago, 35% of growers were using them at least once a year. Today, less than 2% are because they found out how to do it. When we started this project, people were using a lot, a whole range of different chemicals, some that were very toxic and weren't as effective as, as other chemicals that were less toxic. By finding out how to both evaluate the toxicity and develop better management strategies for the whole state in six years, the average toxicity per year went down by 50% in six years. We think that this approach is not instead of organic, but it is a way to wean conventional agriculture into more sustainable paths.
0: The findings Jason Clay assembled in his book World Agriculture and the Environment are radiating out into the world, from small farmers to giant companies such as Dole, Del Monte, and Chiquita. Jason Clay says the take home message is simple.
2: Many conventional farmers are beginning to mimic nature and use biological processes both to reduce input use and to reduce waste. Farmers, like the rest of society, benefit from environmental services and they need to see that and they need to understand how that affects their profitability. Most farmers, I have found, can abandon 5 to 15 percent of the land they farm and produce more at a lower cost, and with higher profits. And that's true of every commodity I've looked at anywhere in the world. That's just amazing to me. (laughs) Farmers are doing better, and they'll do more. The real question is, how can each of us help to speed this up? We're racing against time and life, and I don't just mean ours, I mean all life on Earth depends on it. Thank you.
0: As Jason Clay says, when we fight nature, we lose. Bioneers like Amory Lovins and Jason Clay are showing how we can work with nature to heal nature, serve human ends harmlessly, and create prosperity. From super-efficient cars to shrimp to growing healthy potatoes in Wisconsin, aligning business with biology is signaling the end of brain-damage economics. Instead, it's lighting the path to a breakthrough economics, that's good for business, good for people, good for our kids, and good for the earth. Aligning business with biology. Breakthrough Economics. To find out more about the work of Amory Lovins and Jason Clay and explore more resources related to this show, to order a CD of this program, and to connect to the Bioneers and its annual conference, visit Bioneers.org or call 877-246-6337. To access other Bioneers CDs as well as DVDs of environmental and social visionaries, the Bioneers book series published by Sierra Club Books, featuring titles including "Eco Literacy: Educating Our Children for a Sustainable World. To access Bioneers podcasts and information on becoming a member of the Bioneers, visit Bioneers.org or call the same number, 877-246-6337. The Bioneers, Revolution from the Heart of Nature is a production of Collective Heritage Institute. Executive producer Kenny Ausubel. Written by Kenny Ausubel and Neil Harvey. Managing producer Stephanie Welch. Production assistants Ginny McGinn and Marita Prandoni. Our theme music is taken from the album Journey Between by Baca Beyond and used by permission of Hannibal Records, a Ryko disc label. Additional music was made available by Sounds True at SoundsTrue.com For more music information, please visit Bioneers.org. The opinions expressed in the Bioneers Revolution from the Heart of Nature radio series are those of the presenters and are not necessarily those of Collective Heritage Institute, the Underwriters, or this radio station. My name is Neil Harvey. Thank you for listening. I invite you to join the Bioneers in improving the environment by changing the world. This is program number 0406. program was made possible in part by a grant from Organic Valley Family of Farms, organic and farmer-owned since 1988. Learn more at organicvalley.com.